On the other side of Texas, history has its place. On the other side of Texas, justice rules the case. They don't like it, they don't love it. They say we're all wrong, but on the other side of Texas, hoss, we roll along. Hey, welcome in. I'm your host, Jay West, Texas Leeson. Have a great show ahead for you here. We're going to have Stephen Whitmer. He's a minister up in the Northeast, up in Massachusetts, in a rural community. He's also a professor, Gordon Conwell Seminary, and has written fairly extensively has a new book coming out on small town rural ministry and why it matters to him and i think that many of you who live you know west of i-35 and other less densely populated areas of texas will really enjoy hearing from professor i don't know if i should call him professor or brother or pastor whitmer but he'll come up and then helena bottomiller Evich is a senior food and ag reporter at Politico. She'll join us here in about 45 minutes on the other side. I promised yesterday that we would get into some national, we'd begin to make Thursday's national day. And I don't like to get into national stuff because as a recent Lubbock County judge race proved, we always try to extrapolate the national on to local politics people say well all politics are local i think that's less and less the case as we've gone into social media and we we see all these different perspectives and we try to bring them to bear locally and that's why i don't like i had a guy message me today and just said look i'm done with the apparatus of both parties in texas because they it's it's just a warning. It's like the county never came in and graded the county road, the dirt road. Mm-hmm. And you're just stuck in the ruts. You just get really tired. It just becomes a very vapid argument whenever we begin to extrapolate national and local. And that's why I don't stick with it very often. But I do think it's important to look at national issues every once in a while and begin to take some perspective, some local perspective on national issues but i refuse i 100 percent absolutely refuse to let local or even state be driven by national and everybody thinks and i've said this before go ask 10 people what do you think about let's talk about stormy daniels for just a minute oh my gosh ask i love ten, this subject <laughs> ask 10 people about stormy daniels and what their thoughts are on it locally and then ask them Wow, that was a very intriguing four minutes you just gave me nonstop on Stormy Daniels. Now, tell me how many senators are in the Texas Senate. And with eight of those people, crickets. And what kills me about all this is that that Senate has exponentially more impact on your day-to-day life than does Stormy Daniels or her lawyer or whatever happened when she says Donald Trump was perched on the bed as she came out of the bathroom. So, with that said, I looked at a few stories, and there are several out there, but the one that is getting the most blaze, no pun intended, is what's gone on with Tommy Lauren. Tommy Lauren is a political commentator, and she is she was with the blaze. She does stuff with fox news now as a contributor and 
the thing with Tommy Lauren is that she likes to gaslight. She likes to throw out the red meat, and she says things like this. It's time for final thoughts, and it seems only fitting to take a look back at 2017 and all we've accomplished. Well, in 2017, Donald J. Trump became the 45th president of the United States, which also means in 2017, a majority of Democrats turned into alt-left radical psychos. But we'll get back to them later. In less than a year, Don't Donald Trump has signed 96 laws. Now, the anti-Trump crowd will try to diminish that achievement because the only laws they seem to care about are the ones that force you to buy health insurance or strip your Second Amendment rights. Well, President Trump has done the opposite. In fact, according to an analysis by NPR, 16 of those 96 laws repeal rules and regulations saddled on us by our favorite Democrats. But speaking of getting rid of stupid rules, this president also pulled the U.S. of the Paris Climate Accord, a U.N.-pushed resolution that does very little to help the actual environment, but would have crushed American jobs and energy production. But that's not the only message our president delivered to the U.N. President Trump also recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital, something his three predecessors promised but were too spineless to accomplish. So let's see, what else? Hmm. Under this president, 80% of Americans will get a tax break. The individual mandate has been nixed and Anwar is now open for some good old American energy production. This president also nominated a constitution. Okay, so here's the deal. Go out, trigger people, gaslight them, get them fired up. And that's Tommy Lauren's stick. And I get it. I, I hear a lot of that locally and regionally. It's... It's good for business to put out there that, you know, liberals this, liberal that. And she does a fine job of it. As a professional, she's really found her niche. Now, she's in Minneapolis on Sunday. She's with her parents having brunch. She's called over to a table where she gets into an, eh, some conflict with the table. Over and politics? Yes. She's in Minneapolis, the Berkeley of the North. And she gets in this conversation. I'm not sure exactly what's said, but somebody throws a glass of water at her. And now Tommy Lauren is somebody who has uh, been attacked physically, is uh, how some like Sean Hannity describe that. Now, that's a small price to pay. At the end of the day, she's getting paid. Like, I maybe she paid somebody. To do this, yeah. because it went viral. It just consumed some news cycle on the second page in a lot of places. Wow. On the internet, another one went crazy on social media. Donald Trump tweets yesterday, everybody's with Tommy Lauren, a truly outstanding and respected young woman. And so I am in no way saying go throw glasses of water with people that you disagree. But I do remember a time in this country where... Hamilton and Burr went out to the pasture and dueled over political differences. But, you know, we're all snowflakes now. So, I, kinda, I, I just want to put this out there. I kind of like Tommy Lahren. Okay. Well, that's, I, I'll tell, let me tell I kind of dig what she, how she established She's it. definitely made well for herself. Yeah. In the billfold. No and doubt about smart. it. she's smart. She's a smart girl. She is smart. But here's the deal. I don't consume much water, and I don't consume Tommy Lauren. So my initial take was not to even mess with it. Yeah, uh, no, and I'll I tell mean, you I don't why I don't. Her. Because in being intellectually honest, and intellectually honest 
endowed as a man. If Tommy Lauren looked like Rosie O'Donnell, nobody would pay any attention. Nobody would pay any attention. But, but, but she, she's beautiful. She's pretty smoking. And so people are like, whoa, what does she have to say? Immediately. But here's number two. For the same reason I don't watch many sitcoms. Mm. I, I do watch from time to time. Charity and I will will binge watch on Netflix maybe once a year. We'll, we'll get in like a two or three day deal. But by and large, I don't watch sitcoms because sitcoms are written by 26-year-olds who don't have much knowledge of this world yet. And I know I'm coming up on 40, but even within that 14... Like, what has Tommy Lauren ever done outside, she, outside of being in front of a camera? Has she, has she managed any sort of payroll? She, does she have her own LLC? Has she, has she done anything to bear in this world other than to be like a nine on the scale and then to say (laughs) things that gaslight people okay well okay so look first of all jay i'm gonna have to stop you with the lady thing because you're being a tad misogynistic did you whoa (laughs) whoa did you see the response she had today i i don't follow her i don't consume her either well Guess what? She's there in like yoga pants and a yoga top. I know she did holding... Playboy, right? No, no she. Oh, come on. She no, did. No, she didn't. I'm pretty sure she did. You better look that up I'm before look you it start up right making now. claims like that uh-huh. here on the other side. But she's like packing a pistol in the front of her yoga pants, and she puts out this response to what happened to her, and it's all contrived. Again, 26 year old raking us all over the coals, getting all the attention, and. Look, don't throw water at people, but everybody... She didn't. She interviewed with them. She interviewed. Mm-hmm. So they just just read the magazine for the interviews. Yeah. No. So would Ro- has Rosie O'Donnell done interviews with Playboy? <laughs> no. Uh, maybe you ought to Google that. <laughs> so Gosh. I, I think it's crazy how everybody gets in these conundrums about this. I mean, again, she's 26, okay? And she says fiery things and she gets everybody worked up. I, here, here! I've gotten sucked in. I've done a segment about it, <laughs> but it's craziness to me. I know that David Brooks, he's not very attractive, nor is George Will or or Doris Kearns Goodwin. But they have some things to say that I think are worth listening to. All that, all this Tommy Lauren stuff is just craziness to me. And at at the end of the day, she's making a killing off of this, just yeah. like she always has. Yeah, <laughs> she's just made a killing. Yeah. Yeah, she really. I mean, she I will really challenge, has. She's exploited that. I will that. challenge her to Trivial Pursuit or an ACT, an SAT, whatever she wants to go at. But it's just some. If she, if she didn't look the way she did, she wouldn't get the pass that she gets. And because she gets the pass that I she gets, that. then she just runs the whole thing. Stephen Whitmer is a PhD at University of Cambridge, a pastor at Paparel. I hope I'm saying that right, Paparel, a Christian fellowship in Pepperell, Massachusetts, and he teaches New Testament at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He's written some things we're going to explain as we go along. We've waited a while to have him on the program because he's a great advocate for rural America, and uh, we're glad that you can make time with us here, Stephen. It's great to be on, Joe. Thanks for having me. You know, I went to Asbury Seminary, and did you teach along with Tim Tennant? The, uh, uh, the I was a student when Tim Tennant, yeah, when Tim Tennant was there at Gordon Conwell teaching missions. 
Yeah, years ago. Now he runs that Asbury bus. And speaking yeah. of, I think you may come from, or you may come from the Calvin line. You come from the Calvin line, or I, I you know, theologically, I am. Yeah, I'm re, I'm reformed theologically. Okay. Well, today is the anniversary of the greatest case of heartburn in human history with uh, John Wesley's Aldersgate experience. So mm-hmm. we can just start off with that. Uh, <laughs> uh, am I saying Pepperell right? Yeah, Pepperell. Pepperell. Yep, Pepperell, Massachusetts. About 11,500 people. Yeah, that's right. We are, uh, we're very much a, a, a small town. I mean, I, the way you define small town, really, um, uh, it, it's interesting. You know, some, it's not always just population. Um, often has to do with how close or far you are from an urban or metro area and and also uh, just the kind of feel of the place. So where I live, um, right, right in town, uh, a couple hundred yards one way is a horse farm uh, with stone fences, and the other direction is a pond and and nature area. So it's very much kind of a, a rural feel around where we are. Yeah. So how I first came on to you was you wrote a piece for the Gospel Coalition, Ministry in Small Towns Worth a Lifetime of Investment. And you've become quite an advocate. I know you're doing it from a ministerial vein, but uh, by and large, a rural advocate. Have you always thought this way, or were there an event or a series of events that brought you to a place where you really began to value rural and small-town communities? Yeah, there's kind of an arc of my life in some ways. It's it's interesting. Um, I, I grew up in a, a much smaller place than the one I live in now. So um, I grew up the first 18 years of my life before going off to college in a tiny little town called Monson, Maine, in the north woods, north, north, north central Maine, right on the Appalachian Trail. So 100 miles before the, the northern end of the trail at Mount Katahdin is uh, Monson, Maine, population 700. And um, I grew up, you know, an hour and a half away from the nearest mall and from the nearest uh, cinema and we would uh, to go to the city of Bangor would be a big day trip for us. So I I grew up in a very small place, and um, I loved it on the one hand, and somehow at the very same time I I, I think I imbibed from the larger culture this kind of um, despising of small places, this sort of uh, you know the narrative that if you want to make something of your life you you have to go far from home and you have to live in a big exciting place. And I, I lived that sort of narrative for the next um, probably 20 years of my life or so and lived in some suburbs and some big cities and moved overseas to do some studying. And then 10 years ago, my wife and I moved to Pepperell, Massachusetts. And, um, you know, it's been really interesting this last decade uh, as we have lived in this community and really fallen in love with this place, the people of the place and also the natural beauty of the place. Um, I have I've really begun to reevaluate uh, some of the, the last 20 years of prizing uh, the cities over the country. Not that I, I like cities less. Um, I, I still love to visit world cities, and uh, our family loves to travel when we can. But it, it's really been living again as, a, as an adult uh, in a small town that's changed my mind. Yeah. Stephen Whitmer joining us here. You can find him on Twitter at Stephen Whitmer one the number one. Uh, so you start this initiative, 
I want to call an initiative. You can describe it further, but smalltownsummits.com. What are you trying to achieve there, Steve? We are, um, uh, yeah, fairly new group, uh, probably in the last uh, year or so. It's really taken off. And uh, we've been born out of a group called the Gospel Coalition New England, so it's the regional chapter of the National Gospel Coalition. And uh, uh, what, what we started realizing... Uh, about a year and a half or two years ago, is that most of what we had been doing with the Gospel Coalition New England were uh, events, large events, uh, with well-known speakers in Boston. And I love big conferences with well-known speakers. I I have plans to go to some in the next year. I I benefit tremendously from them. But we're also realizing that uh, so much of where we are, New England, is rural and small town. And if we were going to reach uh, New England, you know, like Vermont and Maine are the two most rural uh, states in the United States, and New Hampshire's not too far behind. So if we were going to reach northern New England especially, but all of New England, we had to get beyond the city and into smaller places. And, and, you know, many of those small towns where where there are pastors, uh, those pastors are bivocational, and it's sometimes quite hard to pull away from the, the church and uh, be able to get away to a big conference in a big city. So we wanted them to be very contextual, and because of that, we've, we've launched this series of summits where we, we welcome uh, small-town pastors and lay leaders to uh, a local area, hopefully, and we have small gatherings in small churches in small towns that are designed to help them think through what they're doing and how to meet the needs of the places where they pastor and where they live. So Texas doesn't rank in the uh, the top rural states. I don't know where Texas is. Um, I, I know you mean uh, you know, Vermont, to, Maine, and New population. Hampshire are way up there, but I wouldn't be surprised if you guys are too. Okay, I, I could see some people with raised eyebrows, especially within <laughs> within range of these airwaves, and certainly on the podcast. I just want to give you the opportunity to correct that there. So, um, so, Far be it from me to denigrate Texas in any way. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't go over well usually. No, no, no. It's one of the I'm leading than that. one of the leading nations in the world. Steve. Yeah. So, uh, let me tell you a quick story about how I came to where I am. I because I want to transition over to Wendell Berry. I went to Asbury Seminary, and it was at Asbury Seminary that that some things began to turn over in my heart and mind, and I got involved with a guy who'd run a grocery store in Wilmore, Kentucky. At, uh, he'd been, his family had been running it for 55 years. And he was considered, he's one of the most genuine Christians I've ever been around, if not the most. And he was doing five funerals a month for people who lived down by the Kentucky River in Kentucky. And I, I began to watch him, but I saw the disconnect between where we were doing our shopping and my family included, where we were shopping and how we felt about this man. His name's Leonard Fitch. He'd run 24 consecutive city council campaigns, won them all, never put out a sign. That's how revered he was in the community. And I saw that disconnect, and so I wanted to write on it, Stephen. And I thought, you know, here, here's a great story about a venerated man, but people are going to Super Kroger and Super Walmart. Well, turns out I went to interview him, and I met with him back by the meat locker in the back of the store, sweet sweet little old man and he told he told i asked him what's your store running for profit he says well we haven't 
we haven't had a prophet since 1996, and this was 2008 or nine. Mm-hmm. And it's because he had put his his wife was an heiress, and they had put all their inheritance, 600 grand, into that store over that duration of time during the rise of the big box stores, and that really struck me. And I had a con- I wrote Wendell Berry, who's a noted author. How can I describe him better, Stephen, for the audience? Yeah. He's he is a, an agorist. Yes, he's he's a farmer, poet, philosopher, novelist, public advocate, public intellectual. Amazing man. A very and very attuned to place wherever one's place might be. And so I wrote him a letter because he doesn't have a cell phone. I couldn't find his phone number, and so I wrote him a handwritten letter and I asked if I could interview him for this piece at that time that I was going to write about Leonard Fitch and he calls me back Stephen and we talked for a long time and he begins to talk about the neighbor and the neighbor this the neighbor that and I stopped him because I didn't know what he meant I wanted the antecedent of neighbor like whoa whoa Mr. Barry can I please stop you and ask you who is the neighbor and he chuckled and he said do y'all still have uh still have Bibles at that seminary and I said we too and he said why don't you go to the gospel of Luke and there's a story about a man who fell by the roadside and the son of man asked a question who is the neighbor and I said the neighbor is the one who helps and he says exactly and that's whenever I stopped from writing and I began to help uh, Fitch with his store and a bunch of people got involved and we call it Fitch's neighbors turn that store around but in that time Stephen Rural economics just ignited, like, speaking of Aldersgate Day, like, that really took off in my mind. And I've read your stuff. I'm sorry to take up a lot of your interview telling that story, but I read your stuff, and he wrote a book called Jaber Crow. And I I think it's two parts in Jaber Crow about an outsider who comes into this fictional community, Port William, and he's a bachelor, he's from the outside, but he's a barber. And he lives in that town for 50 years, and he becomes, in many ways, kind of the town's minister. And I wonder if what you're proposing through small town summits and other things that you're writing, Jaber Crows in the pulpit in rural mm-hmm. communities. Is that, mm-hmm. is that a mischaracterization? Well, l- let me say I am so jealous of you that you had a phone conversation with Wendell Berry. That's amazing, and I love that story. That's an incredible story about... Uh, partnering with that that friend at the store um yeah you know wendell berry's had a a big impact on me i was introduced to him in seminary by a friend as well friend friend from north carolina and i started reading his stuff and i've i've read all the port william novels and i've read some of his essays and some of his poems and been really um helped by him part of why you know you ask about my pilgrimage toward loving and caring about rural areas and small towns and part of that is wendell berry um, he he, ha- he he's helped me to see, I think, the dignity of small places, unknown places, and um, some some people probably have have thought he's he's uh, he paints too rosy of a picture. I would just totally disagree with that. If you really read the novels, he he describes the brokenness of people wherever they live in cities or in in, in the countryside and the complexity of relationship and difficulties of uh, farming and uh, the transition to mechanized agriculture. So anyway, back to your question with, with Jaber Crow. I, I think personally, like one of the, uh, 
one of the things I find not as compelling about Wendell Berry is it, it seems like, um, at least from my my perspective, uh, he has somewhat of a kind of allergic reaction to institutions, uh, specifically to the church. And so, you know, Jaber Crow has a lot of bad experiences with organized religion in in the novel Jaber Crow, and and he's quite suspicious of the church. And so. Uh, at least in my recollection, reading Wendell Berry's novels, there isn't sort of a, um, there are not a lot of sympathetic uh, pastors or um, or strong churches that occupy an important part in the in place in the community. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is probably just Wendell Berry's experience of not knowing a pastor who has come and stayed and lived in the rural areas where he's been. And really invested long term, so I, I suppose part part of my vision for ministry in small places is um, is a reaction to that, saying uh, we we do need to go there and we need to contextualize our ministry and we need to get to know what the problems are. What what are the unique problems of the country and small towns, and then we need to seek to to make those small places better places uh, wherever it is we live. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a fair critique on Wendell, and I didn't uh, I didn't have you on the program, so we talked about Wendell very the whole time. But he does establish place for a lot of people and the importance of place. And of course, in in ministry and in life, we have to deal with. And this is something I drum on on the program a lot. It's not you just can't have liberty. You got to have justice, and that to say, as Americans, that you've got to have uh, you. Well, as Christians, you have to have a respect for your personal relationship with the Lord, but then you have to have the the horizontal, the society in which you live, the neighborhood to be the neighbor, and those are really strong ethos in the New Testament. And yeah, it's very very strong in small places too, isn't it? I, yeah. I was just looking at a Pew Research poll just a couple of days ago, and and uh, it, it, it from my what I took away from it, it looked looked to me as though. Uh, People in small towns report that they are more connected to their neighbors than people in suburbs and urban areas, and and I think that's probably true to what most of us would have thought anyway mm-hmm. or guessed. Yeah. That, that people who live in small towns often live there because they value neighborliness and connection. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, that's one thing. I'll get off Wendell Berry here, but I, in another conversation, he was telling me. Well, I'm not necessarily a churchman. And I said, well, why not? He said, well, because there are just these big old churches, and i got to sit beside people who I don't know, and they don't know me, and we got to act like we know one another. And, and that was his critique. People go to big church. I, I'm not criticizing anybody. But that was, that was Wendell Berry's assessment was this guy stands on the stage, and he doesn't know me, and then I sit by people I don't know, and then we all go home. And uh, I think that may substantiate some of what you just laid out about rural sentiments about where they live Mm -hmm. um so you've said or at least you've written and attributed someone else in a rural community in an urban church i think you're quoting tim keller by preaching the minister earns the right to counsel by counseling in rural communities the minister earns the right to preach and be heard yes yeah, that that goes very much to that that valuing of relationship and uh, authenticity and knowledge of people. 
very often, um, I think this is what Tim Keller is getting at, and, and Tim Keller, you know, is a, a well-known pastor in Manhattan, uh, so he really understands the urban context, and and before that, he pastored for nine years, I think it was, in a small rural community, so he understands that context very well, too. Um, in, in urban areas where there are lots of professionals, um, very often people want to, uh, they, they don't trust the the preacher or the pastor until they see that he is very good at what he does. Um, he's, he's a good preacher, and when, when he's established credibility that way, then they will, they will, will trust him for counseling. Very often in small places, it's just the opposite, that you gain credibility in the pulpit by loving people, by being in their homes, by serving alongside them on work days or maybe going out to their job site with them. And when they see that you're a real person, that you care for them, uh, that you have a stake in the relationship, then they'll trust you to preach the Bible. Uh, so it's it's really a building relationship. Now, you know, that's there's there's probably a lot of nuance to that, and it depends person to person. But I I have ministered in cities and I've ministered in small towns, and I think there's quite a bit of truth to that characterization. You know, having grown up in a small town of 2,900, there's another side, too. I mean, rural communities can be very, very difficult for ministers as well. And I think for the for the guy who wants to stay of course i'm methodist so out of this circuit rider experience it's like two years in and out on the cycle but in other independent churches it could be very very different but small communities a lot of times let's not speaking of rosy let's not make it all rosy it can be difficult on ministers too it can be terribly difficult and in fact i think you know one of the great impacts of the last couple years uh, since the election of donald trump has been the country waking up and asking the question, um, who are these folks who voted for Donald Trump? And there's been a lot of work done um, sociologically and, and polls and feature pieces um, to try to understand more um, the needs and the desires and the fears of much of America. And Robert Wuthno at Princeton University has done some, some excellent work and written some books um, he wrote a book called The Left Behind, uh, which is basically, in, in many ways, asking the question, uh, who, are, who are the folks in America who voted for Trump, and what are their needs and, and concerns? And, you know, there have been major news outlets like the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, who have been highlighting uh, that the fact that many of the indicators of poverty and drug addiction and other uh, problems that are associated uh, very often with urban contexts are at least as bad in rural contexts. So the Wall Street Journal a year or two ago called Rural America the New Inner City. Hmm. Uh, the opioid crisis is huge in rural areas, and poverty indicators are high, and lots of other social indicators are, are um you know, it, it just uh, our, our kind of uh, idealized, idyllic view of Mayberry is not <laughs> is not the reality in rural America. Yeah, because there's upheaval. Stephen Whitmer joining us here on Other Side of Texas. This audio, of course, will be up on our Apple Podcast. Other Side of Texas. As we segue into politics, I think that a minister informs a lot of thinking. I don't think the minister necessarily has to bring the state house in 
to the church house and vice versa, but still informs contextual thinking on policy. And yesterday on this program, we had James Decker, the mayor of Stanford, Texas, who's been my friend for some time. He actually is who I owe a debt of gratitude for passing along your piece. I mentioned earlier in the Gospel Coalition, Ministry in Small Towns Worth a Lifetime of Investment. I want to play for you a clip about a minute with uh, James Decker yesterday. And he laid out what he thought were his top three priorities. He just assumed that office in Stanford, I think, about a week and a half ago. Leading a convention of, you know, some 300 other young mayors in rural Texas your age, what would be three points that you'd hit on? You know, the the um, first thing is to think about what makes your town great and why you love the town and how, how you can use that for the future. Uh, number two is think about how your community can serve the modern economy and not and modern society. You know, you can't, this is something I've written about in the past, is, you know, nostalgia is great, but you can't recapture those certain places and, and businesses and things that happened in the past. You know, what's the spirit of community, local business, that sort of thing that you can um, repurpose for a, for a modern era. And, and number three is, um, and this is something that's very important to me and, and passionate that I'm passionate about as someone who moved, moved back to my hometown, uh, you got to get your young people to return home. So, Stephen Whitmer, there, people in small towns are, are conservative by and large in that they like where they live and they like the, the history and how it's come to play and they want to maintain. But the problem in this country is, and it's not a problem for everybody, but for a lot of rural people, there is an economic upheaval, and in rural communities, it's a landslide, and people are just trying to get their footing with what's happened in innovations and in agriculture and technology and distribution and all these sorts of things. What is a role of a minister or even a civic layperson in rural communities right now to help them find their way? Yeah, a couple thoughts on that. I, I have a, uh, a friend I know, uh, have met uh, fairly recently, a pastor in West Virginia. And um, as you know, West Virginia is a place where there's a lot of poverty, too, very, very rural and a lot of uh, financial economic upheaval. And he's gotten very involved um, in, uh, in the small businesses of his region and in economic development. He's actually uh, helped to lead groups of business owners and he, he himself has a financial background um, and and there's been uh, there's been a lot of it's been I think really encouraging um, as he's he and his church have um, participated in economic renewal and as he's built relationships with small business owners uh, he told me in a phone conversation some time ago that uh, I think he said of the uh, 150 small businesses in his county he could walk into any of them uh, and be greeted because he, he he's invested in in all those uh, small business uh, owners and and built relationships with them. So I mean that's certainly one thing that pastors and churches can do. Um, they can get involved, and not everyone's going to have that same level of gifting and and that same level of time. Um, so that that's one thing. I the the other I think which is so important is that um, that pastors and churches can can just focus on and remind us all of the gospel. And that's that's why we're here as pastors and churches. And um, you know, as there are 
uh, tensions and changes and upheavals uh, throughout the country, but you know, as the rural areas are suffering, uh, part of the role of the Church of Jesus Christ is to to remind us of the central things and remind us um, of the world to come, and then make us more productive in the world to come by remind or make us more productive in the present world by by reminding us that our citizenship is in heaven. So. Um, I think we can work for the betterment of the communities we're in, uh, but ultimately the, the central role of the church is to remind us that um, there, there's a gospel that, that is good news for us whether times are good or whether times are tough. Stephen Whitmer is on the line. We're closing out with him here, calling from Pepperell, Massachusetts. Is that pretty good for West Texas? That's draw? really good, man. Okay. That's I'm right. impressed. Tell us, uh, as we close out with you, you got a big book coming out. You're going to write on all this. When yeah, you... I'm working on uh, a book with InterVarsity Press on on um, on gospel ministry in small towns or rural areas. So it's it's tentatively titled "A Big Gospel in Small Places," and I'm getting away for uh, a couple months this summer. So uh, hoping to get a lot of work done on it um, this summer. And and the goal is really to encourage uh, those who are are part of the church in small places and pastors who are laboring in small places and sometimes you know pretty anonymous pretty uh, unthanked um, it can it could be uh, not not very glorious because uh, you know pastors in small places don't have big platforms and they're not well known uh, but the case I want to make is that there there is something unique expressed about God and about the gospel when we pour out our lives in in small towns of 700 people or, or less, or, you know, rural areas where uh, they're not the center of uh, economic, uh, you know, uh, the, the economic climate. They're, they're not uh, the center of culture, uh, but God really cares about those places. Well, Stephen Whitmer, I'll tell you this. Having grown up in such a place and in Hale County, Texas, those people who came in and were incarnational in the way that you're encouraging them to do and equipping people to be, uh, of course, by the Father, through the Son, and the Spirit, right? But um, they stood as tall as the water tower in my memory, and uh, I really encourage, uh, I really appreciate the work that you do, and I hope as the book comes along, you'll come back on with us. Hey, I'd love to. Thanks, Jay, for the opportunity to speak with you. It's great. Thank you so much, Stephen Whitmer. With- hey, but of all the little towns in West Texas, you can't understand just how, how they ride it out through the dust and drought till you live in a prairie. David Blake Terrell writing about this place where we're broadcasting from here on the High Plains. In Lubbock, Texas, this segment's brought to you by Title One, Lubbock's digital real estate and title escrow company. Title One is committed to providing you with the highest level of communication service from the time the contract opens until it closes. See how Title One can serve your realty consumer and lending needs at TitleOne.com. Love those guys. Appreciate them sponsoring this program. We had the farm bill go down in flames last week on first trial in the u.s house and i've heard from both sides now i've heard the republican line i've heard the democrat line and i'm just, my head is still exploding i still don't understand what's happening and so to get the skinny on it we got to go 
up to D.C. and get with the senior food and ag reporter at Politico, Helena Bottomiller-Evich. How are you, ma'am? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, we're doing fantastic. Just run along here. What? So we've heard all the angles. We've heard all the talking points. What happened? Why did the bill go down? Oh, that is the question of the hour up here in the bubble. Um, well, I think uh, if you step back and look at it, the way the House has approached the farm bill, uh, they made a decision to release a farm bill that included work requirements, uh, new work requirements for the food stamp program, which are extremely unpopular with Democrats. So they kind of knew they were going to have to go it alone with Republican support. So that decision really ended up giving the Freedom Caucus a lot of leverage because if the Republicans are going to pass a farm bill with just Republican support, they need to be really united. And as we all know, Republicans have had these factions between you know moderate and conservatives, uh, and we really saw that play out. The Freedom Caucus used their leverage uh, to force uh, um, immigration votes in June. So it was a play to expedite the calendar on the Freedom Caucus's part. Yeah, they with the wall and everything else. They really want to make sure they get a vote on a more conservative uh, immigration bill. Uh, that bill's not expected to to pass, but they want that vote because they're very nervous that moderates in the House are going to fo- force a vote on um, on DACA. And I'm certainly no expert in all the details of the immigration infighting that's happening, but. Uh, they basically used the leverage that they had on this farm bill to force those issues onto okay, the Okay, so what they wanted was the wall vote before DACA came to the... They want that vote before they used their leverage with the farm bill to make it happen. Is that... Well, yeah, they, they want to vote on... They want to vote on the Good Lat Immigration Bill uh, before wait, wait, voting on the farm bill. what did you call bill. it? What? It's what? the Good Lat Immigration Bill. So... Folks are going to have to look that up because I am not an immigration okay. expert and I'm so, not up on all the specifics. But that's the, they, built, they want to vote on this bill. And what they did was say, we have enough votes to withhold support on the farm bill. Okay, so mm-hmm. leadership kind of called their bluff and just held the vote anyway. Uh, and it went down, you know, we all know, 198 to 213. And I think the biggest question going forward is whether or not the Freedom Caucus uh, ends up rallying their members to support the farm bill after all this is okay um, Elena, tell me done, done. Yeah. in your mind ross ramsey's on the show every week and he has this great he he keeps it down the middle and so he doesn't do commentary ross ramsey of texas tribune he doesn't do commentary he calls it analysis okay so that's i'm going to ask <laughs> you to give an analysis how many people about are in the freedom caucus in the u.s house Ooh, um, it varies. Yeah. I think it. So it's you relative. know, there's not really. It's not. A, it's not official. We don't have an official count. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a couple dozen. Okay. So. Um. But what you've and laid not out. Not all of them identify publicly on whether or not they're in it. Yeah. It just how close to re-election they are. That's my own comment. But. <laughs> so, but what you're saying is what I'm hearing in your analysis, Helena, is that it is a combination of Democrats and Freedom Caucus took down the Farm Bill. 
I think that is a is a fair assessment. Democrats were united in opposing this farm bill. Uh, the leadership knew they needed to have a united Republican party to pass this bill, and they were unable to deliver that. Whether or not they can come back after this immigration vote and do that, I think is an open question. One fun fact for, for your listeners here, um, I went back through all the roll call votes for all the, I'm calling them modern farm bills since 1965, and a farm bill, farm bills don't pass the House with just one party. They usually have, um, you know, 20 Republicans joining Democrats or vice versa, or in some cases, overwhelming bipartisan majorities are passing these bills. So that's kind of the history of the farm bill. So trying to pass it with just Republicans only is, you know, kind of uncharted territory. And you had Chairman Conway even sort of saying that on Fox News right before the vote. I mean, it is it is not easy to pass a farm bill with just one party. Yeah, so, because you've traditionally always, and, you know, I've read Masters in it, you've read it, uh, but what you've had from the very beginning was conservative old guard from the South, agriculture states combining with the Hubert Humphreys, the Northeast liberals and Northern liberals, to vote and pass these bills and that's the way that it's played out over time but i want to go back to this work requirement thing that that's a great issue to run on that you know if you don't work you don't eat you know people take that that scripture and do what they will with it in a political context but also who's defining work and who's defining the requirement and who's eligible and who's unable were those details laid out in a way in your own analysis in a sufficient way that it was cut and clear people knew what the what the boundaries were there yeah you're asking really good questions that i wish more in the media had asked i mean in terms of actually covering the details of what this bill um would do um basically it it imposes a 20-hour-a-week work requirement on on able-bodied adults between the ages of 18 and 59. So able-bodied means you haven't been determined to be disabled, you're not pregnant, um, you know, you're not elderly, there's many uh, sort of exemptions. Uh, You know, it's interesting, what counts as work? Um, It could be, you know, an hourly job, and you could fill out the paperwork that shows that you had 20 hours a week. Um, it could be a work training program. So some states have uh, training programs that help low-income folks like get skills so that they can get a job or get a better job. I mean, we forget that a lot of people who are working don't make enough money to get off SNAP. Like, they still qualify even when they work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things the House bill actually did is it, um, it tried to eliminate community service from counting toward that requirement. And that is one thing that, um, some anti-hunger folks and some like community service advocates didn't, you know, didn't like that very much. That um, that community service wouldn't count. But these are all good questions, and the the, the actual details of the proposal weren't really uh, debated very much. Uh, Democrats were just so upset about about the proposal because the estimate is that some one million people would um, would come off of snap as a result of these changes so they just they just don't think that that's fair that's their you know that's their argument so i am 
I'm in kindergarten whenever it comes to farm policy where you are like in your master's degree, but I know enough about it to know that it's counterintuitive, that there would have been big food production folks from different sectors that probably jumped into this thing and said, no, 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 no. Like food that people are going to go home and cook tonight was produced by people who oppose this work requirement along with Democrats. Is that is that accurate to say? You mean did the farm lobby oppose the work requirement? Well, did the food lobby uh, and different like the oh, sugar lobby um, and the rice lobby and yeah. the grain lobby and every which way? Yeah, so snap politics is real interesting in that way that um, retailers for sure. Uh, do not like the idea of making um, the work requirements stricter or really just doing anything to make SNAP eligibility um, more strict. Yeah, to so lose a million people. They, well, yeah, I mean, and that, and the, there's um, a lot of research on how SNAP is a stimulus for a lot of these grocers, and actually a lot of rural and small grocers have kind of looked at this and gone, well, you know, this really could be um, a hit to business. So there is that, that element to it for sure. Um, it it is it's been interesting to watch because um, this debate really has been so polarized. And you know, you have one on one hand, you have Democrats saying that this takes food out of mouths of babies, literally, and then you have you know Republicans on the other side who say you know SNAP's trapping people in poverty. I mean, the average person gets one hundred and forty dollars a month, um, you know, in SNAP benefits, which helps them buy groceries. So I think on both ends of the spectrum, it's sort of people talking over each other. Yeah to be heard. Lena Bonamiller-Evich joining us here, Politico's senior food and ag reporter, one of my favorites. Appreciate you coming on, and I'm not getting, I'm not done yet. They say... Anytime. Well, hold on, hold on. I'll be back anytime. Yeah, yeah. Let's not close (laughs) it off just yet. The, what I'm told is, even it had the House passed the bill, it would have never flown in the Senate, and that the Senate version would not fly in the House. Why is that? Both so, controlled by Republicans. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, so the the Senate, uh, um, Senate Ag Chairman Pat Roberts has been very clear that he's not looking to do, you know, big reforms in the SNAP program around work. Um, and his message has been very clear on this. He just says, I need 60 votes. I need 60 votes to move a farm bill in the Senate. And he knows that um, there aren't 60 votes for work requirements on SNAP. And so that's why you're probably, I mean, everyone's expecting to see a bipartisan bill out of the Senate. Um, and then you raise a great question is when, let's say the House does pass its bill and the Senate passes its bill over there, bipartisan, when they come to conference those bills, what happens when that package goes back to the House? I mean, you really do end up having a, a situation where Democrats are going to either have to bail out the process or you're going to have to convince the folks on the right to accept a farm bill that doesn't likely doesn't include work requirements. So, you know, you're kind of going through this whole street most likely again with a very different political calculation. Okay. We've got a long road ahead of us. Either like no matter what happens in the house, it's going to be a long road. Okay. Two quick ones before we get you off. And what the great thing about having a radio program, by the way, is that, you can just get people on to do your homework for you, right? So we get to lean on. <laughs> so there were issues that I was following, like, and here I am. I'm 
licking my fingers. I'm about to throw a nasty curve at you. You ready? So the Rural (laughs) Micro Entrepreneur Assistance Program, Value Added Producer Grants Program, Farmer Market and Local Food Promotion, all of these proposals that are existing right now would have been cut out. And that farmer market and food promotion, uh, local food promotion, $150 million would have been cut. Uh, And even rural energy and rural energy for America program, $250 million. Who in your mind, Helena, is, is articulating rural the most comes to the mic and this is what we need to be looking at or these programs, we cannot cut these programs. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think in general, you kind of get at, um, you're kind of getting at one of the, the biggest problems with the farm bill. The farm bill is so big and mm-hmm. touches so many areas. I mean, land use, uh, environmental conservation, rural development, like yeah. just the, the renewable the energy. Breadth, <laughs> renewable energy, like the breadth of issues. It helps feed 40 million people a month. I mean, it's, it's so big that all these pieces that are, you know, $150 million, that's nothing to ignore, you know, but that has gotten very little attention, if any attention, in this big, um, you know, in this in this big bill. So in terms of what rural um, folks would like to see, I, I do think that sometimes gets lost. Um, you know, we've lost a lot of our um, local and regional papers or their staffs are you know, a shadow of what they used to be. So it's hard for a lot of these news outlets to go through a bill this big and figure out what the direct impact would be. Um, I mean, we struggle with doing it. We have a team of four people just on food and agriculture. So I think it's tough to really parse out the impact. Um, And this bill, it's just, it's a big bill. It impacts everyone. And the name Farm Bill is probably not doing it. Um, You know, it's not, it, it doesn't resonate with a lot of people. They don't think Farm Bill, oh, Farmers market promotion and rural development, and you know they might not think about those things. Yeah. So, Elena, where does it go from here? What's next in the process? Well, the House has until June twenty second to reconsider the same bill. So, um, it seems likely that the House will do at least an immigration vote or two. Like I said, I'm not as familiar with the mechanics of how that's shaking out, but. The thinking is there'll be some immigration votes, then they'll bring up the farm bill again, and you know Chairman Conway um, and the Republican leadership are saying like it's going to pass. So that's their that's their goal. That's their um, their understanding of how this is going to go. And then around the same time, actually, maybe even the week before, the Senate is expected to unveil its version. So then that process will start moving in the Senate, but. Like I said, we've got a little ways to go here, and the bill expires September 30th, so there's not a ton of time. In terms of Washington getting things done, that's not a lot of time. Yeah, lots of recesses between now and September 30th as well, I'm sure. Yes. Well, a hot summer coming up, and we've got Helena there in the swamp giving us the skinny on all this. I appreciate you taking time, and uh, hope we hadn't pushed back any deadlines. Oh, happy to join you, thanks. Yeah. Well, you can check her work out there at politico.com. Thank you so much, ma'am. Yep. You're welcome. We'll talk to you soon. Tomorrow, we're going to bring you Brandon Darby in studio, and we're also going to have the, what is he now? Is he the the county judge in waiting? 
I guess that's what we'll call him, County Judge in Waiting. Curtis Parrish will be in. Got some questions to ask him about the politics of what he's got on his plate coming up as he assumes the Lubbock County Judge role in Lubbock. So that'll be a lot of fun. We'll play headline game with Brandon Darby and uh, be an enjoyable ride home for you. But for now, you can check us out, Other Side of Texas, where you can find this audio and more. Some written content at OSTX Show on Twitter, Other Side of Texas on Facebook. And I'm going to go home to an above-average family. Wait, I got that backwards. Above-average dinner and a great family. They, I will say this. They have been above-average, my kids. This last week of school, I have threatened thunder and lightning in a disciplinary role at breakfast time they've gone crazy this week i'm so ready for tomorrow to be over because they are so well and tight for the summer i'm sure i'm not alone in that sentiment Uh, but we thank you for tuning in and thank you for sharing the program and thank you that you hang out on the other side of texas we'll see you tomorrow